Open Field Radio. Like, subscribe, share, and review wherever podcasts are found. If I had to describe this, I'd say it's cool people having conversations about agriculture and life. Because ag and life live side by side and sometimes overlap. I'm your host, Mark Flint, and this is Open Field Radio. Brought to you by Gowan Company. Dr. J. David Rogers, Professor of Geological Engineering, Missouri University of Science and Technology. Professional civil engineer, professional geologist, certified engineering geologist, and Hoover Dam expert. We talk it all right now. I'm going to start this episode out a little bit different with an introduction of our guest, which I don't normally do. As I mentioned in the opening, Dr. Rogers is a doctor and professor of geological engineering and beyond, and he's an expert on Hoover Dam, which will take you no time to figure out when this episode starts. But what we don't get to is he's also a technical advisor to numerous documentary films and programs you've probably watched. Those include Discovery Channel's Disasters Waiting to Happen, History Channel's Mystery Quest and Modern Marvels, the American Experience series on PBS, and the new series American Build on Fox TV, and the Engineering Catastrophes series on the UK's Science Channel, as well as Impossible Engineering in the UK. When it comes to publications, name one. He's been in them from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Times, and it just goes on and on and on and on. True privilege today. Wait till you hear this. Enjoy. You know, Southern California doesn't exist without the Colorado River and Metropolitan Water District. So, and uh, the kingpin, you know, structure of the of the whole you know, deal was was Hoover Dam, originally called Boulder Canyon, the Boulder Canyon project, but it wasn't built in Boulder Canyon. They doubled the size of the reservoir by doing it that way, though. Well, and for us, the Colorado River is literally a block and a half from where I'm talking to you from right now. It's just down the street from you. Are you in the Palo Verde Valley then, near Blythe? Uh, no, the uh, the Gila Valley, Yuma Valley. Oh, uh, you're in the Gila, Yuma. Okay, sure. It is literally two and a half blocks down the street from me here is the Colorado <laughs> River. So it so the subject is not right. far from our understanding, but I think the project as a whole is way beyond you know our scope of 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 thought. You know, when it comes to a geological engineering or civil engineering project, I've never been involved in anything bigger than a sandcastle at the beach. But talk, talk to me about the thought process and maybe the backstory to the concept of the Hoover Dam. Where was the need? What was the expectation? Well, it, it, um, it's a polit- political perfect storm to get it there. I mean, hmm. it was in Congress being introduced twice a year between 1922 and 1928. Every six months it got introduced <laughs> um, by Phil Swing, who was a, a congressman from San Diego. He was an attorney. And... San Diego and Los Angeles, you know, were incapable of supporting more than a quarter million people with their indigenous water supplies that they had. And they they ran around and had all those water, you know, all the water rights all done by 1884. And so um, by the time the second railroad came to town, that's when Los Angeles started to to grow. Prior to that, it's only 6,000 people. And the harbor is San Diego. And Santa Fe built the railroad through Temecula Canyon to San Diego. They did it twice, and it bankrupted them both times. So they gave up on that, and as a expendency to try and get something out of that line going over Cajon Pass into the coastal valleys, they bought a, a short private line that went out of Los Angeles and got 
to where we call Arcadia today, which uh-huh. is just east of um, Pasadena. I used to live there. Yeah, they used to. They finished off the foothill division line, mm-hmm. going across the San Gabriel River, you know, at Azusa, and 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 got that done in six months. And so then they had an outlet, but they didn't have a port. And so Southern Pacific built a big wharf at the north end of uh, Santa Monica Beach, and that was their port of Los Angeles. And then uh, the feds got involved in 1896. Uh, Grover Cleveland appointed a commission to look at this whole issue of should we go with the Southern Pacific you know, concept or should we go down to San Pedro where there was a small fishing fleet there and uh, should we build some sort of port down there. So that's what they ended up doing. And the Los Angeles District of the Corps of Engineers was uh, open in 1896. In 1897, and they started working on the first jetty, first um, riprap rock um, revetment, so they could have a shelter. And it's a 100% man-made harbor, and they've had lots and lots of uh, huge expenditures on silt excavation because they had one storm in January 1914 that deposited three and a half million cubic yards of silt and just closed the place down and they had to dredge all that out and what they used were uh, narrows so that the water leaving would do the excavating for them. So it's a 100% man-made port. So Port of Los Angeles, Long Beach, Long Beach tagged on and copied what they saw Los Angeles doing. Then during World War II, they actually connected them together for Todd shipbuilding and for all the wartime work. And so, seven, you know, 25% of all the seaborne commerce that comes into the United States comes through that port. That, that's, the, that's the mother port. You have L.A., Long Beach, and you have Houston. And those are the two big players on imports. And uh, the coastal ports in Louisiana, there's nine of them, are the biggest on transshipment, on, on sending stuff overseas to combat the, all the stuff that goes uh, to China through Walmart. Anyway, that, that's, that's the big picture for you. That's going to be how you end up getting all this industry and commerce. And the Pacific War is the other part of it. And then flood control is what they knew they had to have because the Colorado is an incredibly fickle river. If you actually plot the, the secret to understanding California's woes with water, if you just plot the coefficient of variation in precipitation, Middle California, from the Bay Area to the Mexican border, has the greatest coefficient of variation of any place in the world. So that means two out of three years you have a drought, and then on the heels of a drought you get an atmospheric river event, which might be six times the um, average rainfall. And of course, when you when you put a, that much water on top of a drought, uh, or you ha- you get a whole bunch of underbrush that grows. And then the next year, you have a two out of three chance of having a drought again. Then all of that underbrush dries up. Then when you get your next dry season after that, you get a big fire. And so the, the fire damages we've seen in California just in the last uh, decade, uh, I, I think, are almost equal to the entire lifespan of the state going back to September 1850. Holy cow. So... Yeah, holy cow. You're listening to Open Field Radio.
I don't know about you, but it seems like everywhere I turn right now, there's something about jobs and the abundance of jobs available out there. Well, here's one to throw in the mix. Skip the job. How about a career at Gowan? Maybe you're in agriculture. Maybe you're in science. Maybe you're none of that. Check it out at gowanco.com careers. Great opportunities available, and they're all cool. Careers right here in America and around the world. Come see it for yourself. That's gowanco.com careers. And tell them you heard it on Open Field Radio. I feel like the more shows we do, the more we get to know each other. You know what I mean? I know you. You know me. Look, we're just regular people, right? I mow my yard. You mow your yard. Regular stuff. And when it comes to promoting open field radio, I need regular people to tell other regular people this show is happening. So tell somebody. Knock on somebody's door. Call them up. Send them a text, whatever. And tell them you're listening to open field radio. And by golly, they should be too. It'll be awesome, I promise, because that's what friends do at Open Field Radio. From the Gowan Global Studio deep inside the Lee Hotel, this is Open Field Radio. So the inception or conception, if you will, of Hoover Dam was a political push-me-pull-you at the beginning. Yeah, it's very, it was very political. I mean, it was the, there was more concrete in Hoover Dam than in all previous Bureau of Reclamation dams combined. That's how big of a leap it was. In the 20th century, it was probably with the atom bomb and the B-29, the two, the three greatest jumps forward in technology. He said, you know, we want to do this, and no one's ever done it on this scale before, but we're going we're gonna to try and do it on this scale. The dam was approved and started in 19, what, 28? Is that correct? Well, it was signed, yeah, the Boulder Canyon Act was signed by Coolidge in December 28. And then it wasn't funded uh, by Congress until March of 1931, and and that was during the Hoover administration. And Hoover had a big stake in the Colorado River because he was the Secretary of Commerce who had chaired the um, meeting in 1922 in Santa Fe to apportion the waters of the Colorado River between the seven basin states. And it's one of the only rivers in the world that, you know, the last thousand miles that it flows, it doesn't pick up much accretionary uh, watershed, you know, water discharge at all. So it's like it's a like the Nile. It's a river flowing through a desert. and has the fifth highest silt load of any river that was known at that time. I think that number's dropped a little bit now, but it's still in the top ten. And then anytime you have a river flowing through a desert area, that's where you're going to have enormous erosion and silt loads. So if you look at the Missouri River, it produces 75% of all the silt and sediment that goes down the Mississippi River. 75% of the water comes from the Ohio River, but 75% of the sediment comes from the Missouri River because the Missouri River taps into dry areas west of the 100th meridian. The Colorado is very similar. So if you look at its principal tributaries, um, like the Virgin River, the San Juan, um, the Green River, all of those are very high silt loads. San Juan and the Little Colorado are the two worst ones, which are the highest, highest silt load. So you had to build um, Glen Canyon to keep the silt from filling up Lake Mead. And that came 30 years later. But in that 30 years, there was 3 million acre feet of siltation. That was 1 million acre feet per decade. Because the largest reservoir in the nation when Hoover Dam was built was uh, in, actually in Missouri, the Lake of the Ozarks, and it was about 1 million acre feet storage. 
And so Hoover was 31 million acre feet. Wow. It was a big leap. 30 times, 30-fold leap. So up to this point, I've been pretty quiet. And you know what? There's not a lot to say because Dr. Rogers has all the details. I won't keep you. Just wanted to say hey and pay close attention because Dr. Rogers is brilliant. How did they pick the location of where Hoover Dam was going to be? Well, the Bureau of Reclamation hired um, Dr. Leslie Ransom from uh, California Institute of Technology. They actually hired him when he worked for the U.S. Geological Survey earlier. This would go back to 1916. They hired him to go look at different dam sites. They had a whole series of dam sites. They started surveying. The U.S. Geological Survey started surveying in the early 1920s. And the one that went through Black Canyon was in 1923. Went through Boulder Canyon and Black Canyon. Mm -hmm. And they were already drilling holes there in the floor of the channel to see how far it was to bedrock and um, it was way out in the middle of nowhere forsaken place to work at that time and <laughs> it, it sure was um, it was scary in Boulder Canyon at the head of Boulder Canyon on the east side you see high water marks that were 40 feet high and you're sitting there going this is a granite gorge at 40 feet high but when you get um, excuse me I got it backwards when, when they got to the Boulder Dam site, it was at the upstream end. They saw 80-foot-high watermarks. Whoa. And, and, it's, and it's just, it was kind of like white washed going up mm -hmm. for 80 feet. Mm -hmm. When you got to the mouth of that canyon, eight miles downstream, it was only 40 feet high. So it's telling you that that narrows is metering the water out and that the water is going twice as fast by the time mm. you get down to the mouth of the canyon as it was at the head. Okay. And it turned out that that, that the granite was very, very beat up and weathered by um, metasomatic uh, intrusions of tertiary age volcanics. So it was kind of like a decomposed granite. It wasn't the fresh kind of granite you see at places like Yosemite. And so... They just assumed because it was granite that that was going to be the best thing to build a dam on. Instead, the um, Colorado River Board, which was appointed by Congress in uh, May 1928 after the failure of the St. Francis Dam north of Los Angeles that the city of L.A. had built, and it was a concrete gravity dam 208 feet high, that made people nervous because they were one of the big sponsors <laughs> of this project. So the Congress appointed a group of famous geologists, hydrologists, and engineers to look it over for six months and issue a report back to Congress. And that report was just a godsend. It, they increased the spillway capacity by 400%. They raised the dam by 25 feet. They had a 9 million acre foot flood pool that they had uh, recommended for it. And they used the term uh, that this dam project has to be built on an ultra conservative manner because if it failed, it would then topple the next two dams downstream, kill everybody in the Colorado River Valley, then turn the corner past Pilot Knob, which is just above the Mexican border, go into 
Imperial Valley and kill everybody because that's all below sea level. Here's a little personal insight. Open Field Radio comes to you from Yuma, Arizona, coming in at an elevation of 141 feet above sea level. Yuma County butts up to Imperial County, California, what Dr. Rogers is talking about right there. If I get in my car and drive 55 miles west of here, I'll be in El Centro, California, Driving into El Centro, California on Interstate 8, there is a water tank to the south side of the interstate just coming into town. On that water tank is a line that says sea level. As you drive in there on Interstate 8, you are below that line. Now, in North America, the lowest elevation in North America is Badwater Basin in Death Valley, California, and it sits at 282 feet below sea level. Interestingly enough, of the top 20 lowest elevations in North America, 16 of them are right there in Imperial County. And just for the record, if you think Death Valley's elevation at 282 feet below sea level is deep, and it is, the lowest place on earth? The Dead Sea in Jordan, Israel. It comes in at 414 meters below sea level. That's 1,358 feet. And now let's get back to Dr. Rogers as he continues on Congress's report and the need for Hoover Dam to be constructed in an ultra-conservative manner or risk catastrophe. That was a pretty sober report, and the Bureau of Reclamation didn't have any any recourse at all. They just had to do those things, and um, and they did. So the stakes were incredibly high in the decision making on this. Yeah, yeah, they were, and they realized that was right. That was one of the first projects that had a board of consultants on it for a dam, and that the eminent board had enormous latitude in what they could recommend. And now that's pretty commonplace. We have a border review every five years for dam safety, for dams that are considered potentially hazardous and they could kill somebody if they fail. Sure. The hazard. Was there not a second board too, an independent board outside of the congressional board? Yes, the Bureau of Reclamation had named their own board. Okay. And it had had their people, their retired people who had moved on to other things that were familiar with the way they did business and the way they did their engineering. And it was it was an august group. There was one common guy into it, and that was Professor um, Berkey from Columbia University. He was actually on both the, the Bureau's board of consultants for the whole time the dam was under construction, and he was on the congressional committee, which only met for six months, 1920. I see. And, I see. um, yeah, that Berkey I'm actually related to, incidentally. Oh, interesting. So, on my dad, on my dad's side, and yeah, he was from Goshen, Indiana. Oh, wow. Small world, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I'm looking at you know, parallel timelines, so to speak, there's a number of things that with the construction of Hoover Dam, obviously we had the depression in and out of that going on just after Hoover Dam we have world wars happening on the infrastructure side of things, especially in our area here in the desert southwest. Irrigation projects are beginning to be developed. And it looks like Hoover Dam is really a very pivotal piece to all of those, historically speaking. Yeah, it was. And, and the, the, the big change that wasn't on anybody's radar scope was the production of power because the federal government hadn't been in the hydroelectric power business previously. There was a lot of opposition to that, a lot of high-end 
political opposition. Same thing with Tennessee Valley Authority, which um, was created in 1933. Those cases went all the way to the Supreme Court because TVA took over some of the private um, power generation stations by, uh, what do you call it? Um, I was going to say eminent domain. Rep, but eminent the... domain. Eminent domain. Yeah. And that's how Wendell Wilkie got into the political spotlight. He actually represented the Chattanooga Power Company against the TVA and against big government and against socialism, and et cetera, et cetera, and became mm-hmm. a, the um, candidate for Republican nomination in 1940. But, um, you know, Hoover Dam, the thing that everybody wanted to emulate when I first went to China 30 years ago to look at the Three Courses Project, I'm sitting there, you know, I'm meeting the head engineer. And above him are the 16 blue volumes, the final reports on the Boulder Canyon project. They've been there since 1944 in that office. When the chief design engineer for Hoover Dam went to China when he was uh, retired from the Bureau in 1944. Mm -hmm. And he is the one who picked that dam site where they built that dam then. 60 years later, and it was only about 10 miles from the front where they were fighting the Japanese at the time when, when he got there. So it was a real precedent-setting project, but what appealed to everybody was the fact that you sell the electricity to pay for the project. Everybody tried to emulate that one for a long time afterwards. So the hydroelectric part of it was brand new to America when Hoover Dam was done. Hydroelectric power wasn't, but the, that wasn't what the Bureau of Reclamation wasn't in the hydroelectric power business. They were in the land reclamation for agriculture business. You know, we bring water in and we could turn the desert into a garden. That was the, the dream that the um, Bureau of Reclamation father had going back to 1902. So here's what I do know. This information comes from a publication called Water and American Government, the Reclamation Bureau, National Water Policy, and the West, 1902 to 1935. So on June 1st, 1902, President Roosevelt, that's Theodore Roosevelt, signed the Reclamation Act into law. The legislation directed the national government to construct irrigation projects in 16 western states and territories. It entrusted the job to the Reclamation Service which was created within the Interior Department's United States Geological Survey. Jumping ahead a little bit from 1902 to 1935, federal waters policies reflected remarkably consistent attitude towards nature. Part of the larger conservation movement, these policies sought to transform, quote, natural resources into predictable, manageable, and measurable units, as well as commodities that could be bought, sold, and traded. Hmm. At all levels of government, water policies exemplified the American will to order and dominate the physical world, and an almost primal impulse to, quote, complete the evolutionary process dictated by God or culture. In 1902, federal reclamation promised to, quote, subdue worthless land and turn the desert wilderness into a garden. And and there's some truth to it, and there's some lie to it, because if you have, you know, salty soil, you have to keep watering it to wash the, the salt out. Right. So, in that places like the Owens Valley, which L.A. took their river from them in 1905 and built a 233-mile-long Los Angeles aqueduct, that area would have been out of farming about 100 years later because of salt and silt buildup. 
So that's a big problem everywhere you go in the world. We go over to Iraq and we look at the the old systems of irrigation that were set up there. None of them survived more than 250 to 350 years before salt or silt buildup made them not work. Like if you go to the site of Babylon today and you take a backhoe and you backhoe it, you'll get pickleweed and salt brush on the top. Uh-huh. And when you go down about nine inches, you'll see this beautiful dark black loam uh, that's just, it's, it's um, overbank silt deposits. But you have to skim off all of the salt layer above it, which is about nine inches thick, if you wanted to grow anything out there. And so the Israelis have done more on it than anybody else um, looking at, you know, fertigation and looking at uh, um, species of developing species of tomatoes that can actually grow with a briny water watering them. And they're sweet tomatoes somehow. I don't know how they do it, but uh, they figured it out. How did Hoover Dam shape the southwestern region of the country after it was built? Well, during World War II, it enabled the production of the Henderson magnesium plant, which was key to the B-29 project, which actually cost more than the Manhattan project, believe it or not. Wow. They were both over $50 billion dollars. And so we had to develop a bomber to carry the atom bomb, and we had to develop the atom bomb. But we needed magnesium for the B-29, and that became the largest uh, magnesium plant in the world, and it was a big user of the electricity being generated. Just like um, the B-29 production of aluminum was also dependent on Grand Coulee Dam up in the Pacific Northwest on the Columbia River. Okay. So both those hydroelectric projects got done just barely in time, you know, for World War II. And Hoover didn't actually have the last of the 16 Francis turbines put online until 1961. So it took them 30 years to get all of the electric turbines into the powerhouses. That's how big of a powerhouse it was. Wow. And Hoover had the largest powerhouse until it was eclipsed by uh, Grand Coulee. And Hoover had the, was the largest concrete dam in the world until Grand Coulee was completed. It was 3.4 million cubic yards, but Grand Coulee was 10.4 oh my gosh. million cubic yards. Yeah, it was a big jump. Of course, you have, during World War II, you have Nellis Air Force Base. It's, it's Las Vegas Army Airfield, and that was the largest gunnery range in the United States. So more uh, Army Air Corps people went through that base than any other base in the United States. So it was key for the Army Air Force. And because they had all these Army Air Force guys there, um, Las Vegas grew also exponentially mm-hmm. during that same time. And that was pushed by Union Pacific Railroad because they went through there as the L.A. and Salt Lake Railroad in 1911 and then were bought out by the Union Pacific in the early 20s. And that was the way that um, Salt Lake City and Utah had a connection to the Port of Los Angeles. And so there was nothing there till Hoover Dam got built. But with the advent of freeways and interstate highways, Las Vegas, you know, just steadily grew. And then in the mid-80s, it became a retirement destination for people in Southern California. So you get 2.6 million people out there now. 
in the middle of a desert, and their apportionment of the Colorado River is only 300,000 acre feet per year, because that was signed in August 1922, when there wasn't anybody in Las Vegas Wells. Surprise! So, yeah. So. <laughs> I read a thing that said that Las Vegas was actually, and the idea of Las Vegas and the hopes that it would grow, was actually a bigger part to the Hoover Dam planning than most people yeah. know. Yeah, and then you have the you have the, the the dry zone, which is the you know Boulder City, where they mm-hmm. do not allow any um, alcoholic beverages or right. any ladies of the night, uh, any of the things that you see up in Vegas. That place doesn't have them, and um, it's a safe place to send your kids for vacation. <laughs> and there there are more people living there now too. I mean, it's a sizable retirement community as well. I was just there. It's a nice town. Yeah, Hoover City. it is. Yeah, actually. No, yeah. Hoover Dam. Let's jump way ahead to like today. Hoover Dam is quite a tourist destination as well. Yes, yes, it really is because it is it is spectacular to just get in there and look at it and think, you know, who are these guys that hung off these ropes to build this thing? I mean, it's. I, I went to it and visited it when I was 19 years old, mm-hmm. and um, I had it my my first Jeep. And I was just smitten by the whole thing. I, I just thought, wow, this is the kind of projects I would like to work on. Something you could come back and look at it 100 years later and say, my dad, you know, worked there. Right. And so uh, I I just have worked on dams my whole life. And I, I find all of them fascinating. They're all geologically unique. You'd never build, get away with building Hoover Dam today, by the way because there's 26 faults that it's abutments uh, cross that are all less than 4 million years old. And that would just drive, a, drive us crazy <laughs> today trying to figure out. How'd they get by that in the past? They don't worry about, didn't worry about that kind of stuff in the past because they weren't living there the last time there was a large earthquake. There was nobody you know, that was around to tell them about it. That all came out when... Um, we started doing the seismic background work for the new highway bypass, the big arch, steel arch bridge you see just downstream. Uh-huh. They went out and did what are called uh, paleo-seismic studies, where they trenched the faults from the Las Vegas area and tried to date how long it's been since they were moving. And they found that a whole bunch of them are active. They just hadn't moved lately. <laughs> it's encouraging. So, yeah, so they had to design it. Now, the good news is Hoover is incredibly conservative. So even if you wanted to take a tactical nuke and use it uh, on Hoover Dam, you would have the hardest time taking it out of all the dams in America. I would probably rank it close to the top for most overbuilt. Give me the dimensions on it, just for the sensational value of it. How tall is it and how thick is it? Well, it's 727 feet high, and they purposely kept Glen Canyon two feet shorter than that. Glen Canyon is actually wider and much thinner, and it's over 4 million cubic uh, yards of concrete. But that's because the canyon's so much wider, being in the Navajo sandstone. Hoover Dam is about three times thicker than it needs to be, three to seven times if you put a thin arch dam there, which it could support. So it's a very conservative section. How thick is it? um, On the on the on the base, it's five hundred and thirty-five feet. 
Oh my six. gosh! Wow! Yeah, yeah. All so it's, concrete. It's a gravity. It's a gravity section, but then it's curved on a five hundred um, foot radius, and so all that arching and all that additional thickness was to make it ultra conservative because that board used that term um, back in 1928. For the listener, break down the conservative aspect of it. Ultra conservative meaning what? Meaning that factor of safety against failure is, the, uh, is very high. Typically, the ratio between the forces making something stable versus the forces making it unstable that's called the factor of safety. And if you look in the uniform building code, it has to be, for any retaining wall, you have a minimum factor of safety of 1.5. So the resisting forces have to be one and a half times bigger than the driving forces that would promote failure. Um, Hoover Dam um, ended up having high uplift pressure, so they had to go out and Redrill the grout curtain and triple the depth of it. That took ten years wow. after the original uh, completion of the pouring of the dam. But it's a very, very conservative cross section. So you could, like I said, you could bomb it with conventional ordnance, and it wouldn't do much to it, really. Well, is it true that in World War II the Germans actually had it on their map as a potential target? Yep, they sure did. Tried, they tried twice. The first time they went after the uh, intake towers, which was very intelligent. That's a real, that would be a very a vulnerable place to uh, attack it. And what happened was um, one of the, our secretaries in the consulate that we had in Mexico City, who was bilingual, she picked up on these guys being German agents, and uh, she kept the... United States off down there and they got back to the FBI and we went out and intercepted them when they were trying to rent the boat to go out there. And that was in 1940. We weren't at war with Germany yet officially, I think on that first incident, the second (laughs) incident was about a year and a half later and they were trying to um, flag the switchyard in Boulder city, the main switchyard, which, takes the power down for the Colorado River aqueduct to take water to LA and San Diego. They went and that's a you know pretty easy low frame, low hanging fruit type of target. And that, that got intercepted the same way. So it was through comms intelligence, we call that communication intelligence and and those guys were um, arrested and incarcerated for the rest of the war. So and there was also a um, camouflage scheme to camouflage the whole dam. There's a model of that that's still there somewhere in the archives. I've seen it. It's made out of plaster. But they were um, going to they put lights on a false cable system so that it looked like the dam was upstream from where it really was. They kept the lights on the powerhouse and the dam off. And then they had these fake ones that were further upstream on these cables so that if Japanese tried to bomb it. And the Japanese did um, a number of bombings on the coast. That wasn't ridiculous. It was the I-400 class submarine that carried uh, float planes. And they started, they tried to start fires with dropping incendiaries up in Oregon in the forest. Okay. Things like that. So, but they had, they had a full camp there um, named Camp Siebert. Siebert was the general 
from the Corps of Engineers who had built the Panama Canal, who chaired the Colorado River Board back in 1928. So they called it Camp Siebert. And Camp Siebert was just for the security of uh, Hoover Dam and Powerhouse and the whole general area. So they, you had to have a pass in order to go down Highway 93. <laughs> <laughs> the dark During stories the of history we don't often hear. Those yeah. are amazing. Those are amazing. Yeah. You know, I Googled Hoover Dam expert and your article, The Majesty of the Hoover Dam, is the very, very first thing. Talk to me oh, about... Wow. Yeah, pretty cool, huh? Talk to me uh, about that article for the 75th anniversary celebration of the Hoover Dam and your experience in writing that. Well, I was asked by the American Society of Civil Engineers to do that, um, uh, to write a one article that turned into five articles because I went over 25 pages. <laughs> and each, so each one of them is about 20, 20 or 25 pages. And um, that was when they were planning for the symposium. I had lectured a lot on it um, around the country prior to that. And so I just... And then I got appointed to the History and Heritage Committee of the Society. And I was on that for 10 years. I'm actually a corresponding member now. I'm not real active anymore. But um, that all occurred because of a mentor I had at Cal Berkeley in my civil engineering graduate training for six years. And his name was Jerome M. Raphael. And Jerry Raphael was an employee. He was actually the director of the structural modeling branch of the Bureau of Reclamation in Denver. He went to MIT, bachelor's and master's in 33 and 34. And then he built, uh, was a resident engineer on Shasta Dam. And he was mentored by um, the fellow who was the chief designer of the Bureau for 20 years, which was Jack Savage. Uh, John Lucian, Jack Savage. And so he's the one that told me a lot of the stories. And he had worked for Roy Carlson. And Roy Carlson worked with um, Cal Berkeley and a guy named Raymond E. Davis to do all of the concrete design, batch design, the chemistry of the concrete, and then all of the instrumentation that went into that dam. It was the first fully instrumented dam in world history. Roy Carlson was the genius behind that. He was from Redlands, California, and had gone to Redlands College, got a degree in physics, like in 1922, and then went to Caltech, got a master's in, in physics and mathematics. He didn't have an engineering degree, but he's a guy, he went back to MIT as a teacher, and he invented the strain gauge. <laughs> and that was used in the atomic bomb project. Right. It was used in all sorts of things. And he was a he was at Berkeley when I was there. So I got to interview Roy and I got all his papers on Hoover Dam. Wow. And I got to interview Jerry, of course, because Jerry was still alive. Savage had already died. But I didn't get to interview him, but I got all of Savage's papers that he gifted to Jerry. Jerry gifted to me. So and Jerry died spring of 1989. So I had this stuff that I was carrying around with me. I caught at Berkeley for seven years, 94 to 2001. Then I moved to Missouri and hoping when I moved to Missouri, things would be a little, you know, slower and quieter. And I could work <laughs> on some of these history stories sure. 
that I wanted to do. Yeah. And um, now I'm basically, I do a lot of advising to uh, documentaries like um, Fox Nations, uh, American Built. I'm an advisor to them. I do uh, PBS and several others, English ones, engineering catastrophes. So I'm having a lot of fun doing stuff like, yeah, like we're, we're doing right now. <laughs> so if I'm, I'm going, I'm winging it, you know, I'm, I don't have any references here with me. I'm just telling you what I know off the top of my head. Did you hear that? He's winging it, winging it. He's got more information off the top of his head than I will ever have, let alone the information he has on Hoover Dam. All of this so far has just been matter-of-fact conversation with him on things he thinks about all the time. That's so cool. I think the word you used earlier was when you saw Hoover Dam at age 19 and you were smitten. And I can't imagine the feeling of... A, being smitten at 19, and then later in life being asked to write the 75th anniversary celebration papers and those things. That's got to be quite a privilege. Yeah, there's something I forgot to tell you. When okay. In my civics class as a senior at West Covina High School, um, the teacher was gone one day, and he showed the, 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 um, the newsreel movie, 60 Minutes Long, on Hoover Dam, made in 1935. And that... That was actually where I was smitten. <laughs> okay. And then, then I wanted to go see it, and I didn't get an opportunity to go see it till I bought my first Jeep, my freshman year of college, and it was on the president's, you know, birthday, the the twelfth of um, February. My best buddy and I, who still lives in Las Vegas, by the way, how fun! We went out there because his family went to Las Vegas every year for vacation and so he knew his way around and so we went up to see Hoover Dam for the whole weekend <laughs> and we actually we went to Davis we went to Parker Dam Davis Dam and Hoover Dam in one trip there you go yeah pretty pretty cool my my grandfather worked on Parker Dam I don't know what yeah, he did you were telling me that yeah I don't know yeah. what, I don't know what he did I'm gonna have to ask my mother and find out what he did but um they lived for two years out there in the desert in Parker yeah and he was involved that was the in that deepest, deepest foundation for any dam ever done up till then. About 235 feet down. below the water. Yeah. Down. Yeah. Who dug that hole? Yeah. Wow. Coast to coast and around the world. You're listening to Open Field Radio. If you haven't heard it, it's new to you, right? Gowan USA has a broad selection of herbicides, fungicides, and insecticides to deliver customized solutions for your crops. Gowan provides the right programs to fit your unique needs, standing behind our products with expert service and support. And Gowan USA is family-owned and operated right here in the United States of America for over 55 years. That's a long time. Check it out for yourself at gowanco.com. And now you know. Cool people having conversations about agriculture and life. Open Field Radio. And now back to Open Field Radio with our guest, Hoover Dam expert, Dr. J. David Rogers. Well, talk to me with Hoover Dam, and I've always wondered this, and I was reading some things yesterday, I think, in preparing to talk with you today. Where did the water go, first things first, when they started building the dam? How did they reroute that? And then B, how long did it take to fill it? Okay, that's, those are good questions. Um they had to build the world's largest diversion tunnels. Those were all 66 feet in diameter, which was about 10 times. Wow. You know, the size of most diversion tunnels. And they did have one flood that did um, stop, slowed them down for about two and a half weeks, 1932. Um, 
but that was all. And they then paved those with three feet of concrete, and so they became uh, 60 feet in diameter as the finished diameter. And that was to um, divert the entire flow. You have to remember, about every three years, the Colorado River, when it, before it was had dams on it, would peak out around 100,000 CFS, okay. 100,000 cubic feet per second. And that's, you know, in most of the time down there near Yuma, they were getting about 500 feet, cubic feet per second. So <laughs> to have, you know, 100,000 come through is a big That's difference. a big difference. <laughs> and um, the, the, the flood of record in 1884 was 384,000 cubic feet per second. And that was that Topak, about nine miles downstream of, uh, needles okay. at the Narrows, and they had their whole engineering crew out there building the Red Rock Candelever Bridge, the largest cantilever railroad bridge in the United States at the time, and so there were knowledgeable people there watching that flood, watching their bridge get destroyed. What they thought was bedrock was not. It was actually huge boulders, and the river uh, eroded vertically downward 40 feet. Whoa. But even with all those records, they had five and a half billion cubic yards of silt go by in 24 hours at the peak of the flood, which explains how Grand Canyon got there and maybe didn't take as long to get there as everybody <laughs> with those kind of flows. But um, there was a high water mark that they surveyed in that was five feet higher than 1884. And they put on that one, they put question mark 1805. We don't know what the date of that one is, but it was even bigger than 1884, which is 1884 flood, by the way, we know now it was a reaction. It was an El Nino reaction in an atmospheric river to the uh, eruption of Krakatoa between Java and Sumatra that occurred in September 1883, the Krakatoa eruption. Amazing. So... How long did the lake take to fill? That's an easy one. Um, they wanted to fill it. Jack Jack Savage wanted to fill it and test the spillways and test everything to make sure it was working right. So they started filling in June of 1933. They didn't get it done till September 35. They topped out the water in August 1941 and started testing the spillways for three months, August, September, and October. They held it at the high level and the spillway tunnel, the tunnel spillways cavitated something terrible. They eroded into the reinforced concrete tunnel plug. And um, that was assuaged at the time to be because of a surveying error between of one inch coming down from the top versus what they got coming up from the bottom. It turned out that wasn't really the case. It was just the water was going faster than 114 feet per second. And at that speed, you tend to get um, negative atmospheric pressure, which causes uh, confined air bubbles to burst. So you have to aerate the water. The Bureau didn't accept that theory. There were two theories. They, the one they didn't accept turned out to be wrong. And um, <laughs> well. that didn't become apparent to everyone until the late 60s, early 70s, because of all the other projects going on in places like Brazil and in Pakistan, where they had ser serious 
cavitation problems. It was called cavitation. So then the problem was the Bureau knew they needed to retrofit these dams, but they couldn't get appropriations from Congress to do it. So it happened again in the 83 flood and just about took out Glen Canyon. And Hoover Dam got, you know, damaged just as much. But then they got the appropriations to do emergency repairs, and they did. And they finally put the air ducts in. So they, they put so many air bubbles in there, you don't get as many of these bubbles um, collapsing on themselves at minus one uh, atmosphere. Um, cavitation is scary. I mean, it is scary. It goes right through titanium, right through steel, right through concrete, like a hot knife goes through butter. You don't want to have a, uh, any hydraulic structure go into cavitation without aeration. So cavitation, I had to dig in on this a little bit just for my own clarity, if nothing else. Cavitation is a phenomenon in which the static pressure of liquid reduces to below the liquid's vapor pressure. This leads to small formations of vapor-filled cavities in the liquid. When subjected to higher pressure, these cavities, called bubbles or voids, collapse and generate shock waves, which may be damaging to surfaces and machinery and all kinds of things, including metal, concrete, etc. And it can happen very rapidly. If you search the results of cavitation online, you'll find some staggering pictures of what happens when this goes down. Kind of interesting, cavitation is typically an undesirable phenomenon in things like machinery and dams, but is desirable if intentionally used. For instance, in sterilizing contaminated surgical instruments, breaking down the pollutants in water purification systems, emulsifying tissue in cataract surgery, and getting rid of kidney stones. Interesting. When the day came to fill Hoover Dam, do they just shut the water off that was going around it? And it all goes into the yeah. dam. How, so it took six, if I do my math right, about six years to totally fill it? Yeah. Yes. They had stony gates, stony gates that they put in on the diversion tunnels on the upstream end, on both the Nevada side and the um, Arizona side. And half of those, the inboard ones, feed to the powerhouse. The outboard ones are just for a flood when you have a flood. Did it take six years before water came downstream? No, 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 no. They, they, the dam was so high by that, by 1933, the dam was, you know, a couple hundred, like 175 feet high. They could, they could start, you know, allowing water and it actually helped them because that cool water up against the concrete keeps the concrete from curing too fast. They had to run miles and miles of, um, filling water through the mass concrete to take the heat of hydration of the concrete setting out of it. Otherwise, it would have got up to about 175 degrees, uh -huh. and that would cause thermal cracking. Right. So in those days, they didn't have enough low-alkali cement in production in the western United States, so they had to use the cooling pipes. They didn't do that at Grand Coulee. By the time Grand Coulee came along with much more concrete, you know, all of the con the cement manufacturers realized they could make a lot of money if they just make low alkali cement, and that's how they did all the rest of the dams. So Shasta, Hoover, Fryant, all of the ones that are of that era by Jack Savage, including uh, Grand Coulee, they all had, they didn't have the cooling pipes. Only Hoover Dam had the cooling pipes with the chilled water running through it. 
And that was to hurry up the curing process so it wouldn't take 150 years. <laughs> it's amazing. What, um, because our show is ag-centric, can you give me the effects in our region that Hoover Dam had on agriculture, Imperial Valley, Yuma, of course, all of Central California, et cetera? Well, it's gigantic in terms of safety and metering out the flows so that you don't get um, out-of-channel flooding which is what had created the Salton Sea, 1905-1907. And we all have Harriman of the Southern Pacific Railroad to thank for graciously opening up his checkbook and fixing that problem and never being reimbursed by Congress for doing it. Right. But Theodore Roosevelt talked, talked him into doing that, and so he did. And, boy, I don't know what would have happened. Because that was the greatest environmental disaster of, of you know in American history probably is you know what are we going to do with salt and seas which it's just gotten more saline with time so it's it's not an easy thing to solve at all downstream flooding was an issue for this region of the country yes you had to you had to have that before you could have the reclamation because you have to make it safe enough to sleep at night in there and um that was a big problem because <laughs> you're talking a huge area that lies below um, sea level. It turns out now, they didn't know this then, it turns out that if you believe the U.S. Geological Survey, about 90% of the time over the last 100,000 years, the, the, the river was actually flowing and turning that corner and going into where the Salton Basin is today, you know. Mm-hmm. That's that's where it was going. So we have shorelines way up there by Indio that are right, right at sea level, and um, that's why the soil is so rich. It's lacustrine soils, silt, really nice silt, sandy silt, and uh, it actually doesn't have a very high salt content like a regular desert valley would in southern Arizona or central Nevada, but it is brackish enough that you have to, you know, you have to flush the excess salt out of it. Water, a part of you, a part of me, pretty much a part of anything, and it is the commonality throughout agriculture. Without water, we don't have anything, and everybody wants it. And with that comes water levels. Are they up? Are they down? Are they changing? What's happening? And what are we going to do to keep the water we have? Three out of the last 25 years have been below what we thought was normal back in 1922 when they signed the Colorado River Compact. They, they didn't have enough years of... Um, it turned out the years they were using were wet years. If you go back 500 years and look at tree rings and things like that, proxies for... And so it was it was wildly over-apportioned. It, uh, it's been running, you know, six to seven million acre-feet a year, and the compact assumes 15 million acre feet a year to the lower uh, three states lower called the lower basin states so that's that's had to be completely taken apart and reworked and so the, the one agency that's been very you know conservative on all that has been South Nevada water agency I mean maybe with you know who with um, Las Vegas they've spent in the billions to get three different tunnels, one to a zero pool. And then they've been banking water 
into the ground in the North Las Vegas Basin underneath Lake Las Vegas, the dry Lake Las Vegas, not the, the created one. And then uh, over in the main Las Vegas Alley, they bank water there in the ground, which is smart in the desert. You don't want water out in an open lake in the desert. Nope. Um, and it, it won't be too long till you'll start seeing all of these lakes that are in deserts with, with covers on them that have solar cells. That and that's sense. already starting. Yeah. And you're trying to not lose a million acre feet a year to just simple evaporation, which is where Lake Mead's park right now. So what's the future of Hoover Dam and its importance to America? Well, it's it's being preserved by, you know, the Glen Canyon catching more of the silt because Glen Canyon catches the little Colorado River. No, actually, it doesn't catch the Little Colorado. It catches the San Juan River. So that's a big hunk of silt that it's picking up. And so it's losing capacity every year in terms of storage. So Hoover Dam can stay there and operate for another 400 to 790 years, something like that. I think the last time we did a sediment survey was 2005 to seven, and uh, we hadn't seen anything appreciable deposited there since uh, mid-1963 when the gates on Glen Canyon shut. So Glen Canyon Dam is uh, there to help preserve the life of Hoover Dam, uh, and it is doing that. You've been listening to Open Field Radio from Gowan Company. Like, share, subscribe, review. Everywhere podcasts are found. The views and opinions expressed by the guests of Open Field Radio are theirs and do not necessarily reflect those of the program. All rights reserved. No duplication or redistribution without permission.